Good morning, I'm Abigail Pecklow. Please join me in scripture today from Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things on heaven and things on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Abby. Uh, Normally I get to say you all may be seated, so you all may remain seated. I'm Jeff Schultz, one of the lead pastors here at Faith Church, if we hadn't had a chance to meet, and uh, we're glad that you're here today. Uh, I am also the husband of Amelia for more than uh, 26 years now, and uh, we have had uh, a really good relationship in so many ways. I am uh, so thankful for her. Uh, Our relationship works uh, largely because Amelia has great character, and I am a character, so we balance each other out. Uh, we, we have a good relationship. We enjoy each other's company. We, you know, up and down, but we've tried to really be intentional about investing in each other and in our relationship and, and talking through issues and, uh, and, and we enjoy each other and we're thankful that we're married, uh, even married to one another still after 26 years. Uh, But with all this love and and all those years and all the thankfulness and all the good things that God has done in us and through us, uh, we're not free of trouble and conflict uh, in our marriage. And maybe you can relate. Uh, You know, don't get the wrong impression. It's not like we're, you know, going home and yelling and arguing at each other or or having loud, angry fights or anything. Uh, That's not the kind of relationship we have, but probably like in a lot of relationships, uh, we bump up against each other. In, in ways that hurt each other. Sometimes it's something was said too quickly or thoughtlessly. Maybe it was uh, an irritated comment, a quick accusation, a selfish demand. You know, sometimes we can be quick to say, I told you so, when uh, grace and forgiveness would have been more helpful. Sometimes it's uh, angry accusations and uh, self-righteousness. Uh, my last name is Schultz, so that means I'm a German, and uh, they say you can always tell a German, you just can't tell them much, uh, and that's true in my case. Part of my German heritage means uh, there's a place for everything, and everything's supposed to be in its place. That is not Amelia's heritage, and that's not her, the way that she's wired. She gets a lot done, and she gets it done fast, and she tends to leave a trail of creative expression in her wake, shall we say. So a Friday night, I had done some work cleaning up the kitchen. Saturday morning, I come down expecting to see this, you know, nice, clean countertops and everything's put away and there's four dirty bowls and a mixing cup full of molasses and breadcrumbs all over the counter and uh, Amelia had been making bread, and, uh, you know, so I was looking forward to that, but it looked, you know, sort of like a baking tornado, like Betty Crocker had exploded in the kitchen or something. And there's this part of me that's grateful for that, of course, because it's a wonderful gift that Amelia has, but then there's this other part of me that's not so good part that's annoyed. 
Like, I just spent all this time cleaning this kitchen. And, and don't you care about what I've... Now, I didn't say that to her. I prayed and, and got myself under control, and I cleaned up some of the dishes. And I left the rest for hers, because it was her mess, obviously, right? So, sometimes in our relationship, you know, we can, we can be almost like grave robbers, right? We go and dig up things that should have stayed dead and buried years past. And, and we want to bring them back up and, and resurrect them again. And with all of our love for one another, with all of our commitment, with all the joy and appreciation and blessings that we've shared, with all the good things that God has done in us and through us and, and for us over the years, we still struggle to live at peace with one another. Can anyone else relate? It's not just about marriage, right? I mean, on the one hand, you'd, you'd think, of course, if any relationship should be free of trouble, it, it would be you know, this person that you've committed your life to, right? But even that relationship of affection and appreciation and, and admiration and respect and love, it's not free of conflict. And, and it's not just husbands and wives, right? I mean, then, then kids enter the picture. And I never had to teach my kids, you know, how to argue, how to stand up for their own rights, uh, you know, how to use words to, to hurt each other, how to demand their own way. I never had to teach them how to be dishonest. And as their dad, you know, as they're growing up, I, you know, I could intervene in their arguments, I could referee, I could try and point them in a good way, but I, I can't make them love each other. I can't deal with the issue beneath the surface that's, that's coming out in the arguments, right? It's beyond my power. It's an amazing thing. You know, we, we struggle with people that we love. You struggle to live at peace with the people closest to you. And then, of course, there are all the people that, that don't love us too, right? I mean, it's hard to be at peace when you're in a hurry to get someplace important and nobody else on the road seems to understand that because they're all in your way, right? There are those ignorant people who refuse to see our side in, in politics or our preferences or our positions or, or our values or our way of doing things. And, and, you know, and we can get angry and you know, make you want to scream. And, and sometimes we even struggle to live at peace with ourselves, don't we? You know that you don't always relate to people the way that God intended. That we don't always use our words to bless and encourage and build up. That, that often we can see the ways that we're more motivated to live for what we want than, than what God wants. We can look at our lives and see ways that words can sometimes be weapons of war instead of words of healing. And we can all look back at things that we're ashamed of, embarrassed of, that that are just painful. And we've all had moments that we wish we could take back, things that we'd said, things that we'd done, things that we wish that we had done. And I'm not right in myself. And there's something in me that's not right with God and, and not right with people around me. And we live in a world where relationships are broken, where the world is broken, and where I'm broken. And our problem is not fundamentally lack of resources or lack of intelligence or lack of skill. Because changing our location, changing our situation, changing our relationships doesn't solve the problem. So what does God offer to us in this? What hope is there for finding peace in the, in the middle of all this struggle and brokenness inside and around and, and outside of us? 
God gives us principles, but he doesn't mostly give us principles, and he gives us direction, but he doesn't mostly give us direction, and and there are skills in the Bible, but that's not what the Bible is really about either. God gives us something much better, more radical and life-altering, and that's what we want to look at this morning in this passage in Ephesians 1. So if you haven't turned there already, uh, it's on page 1159 of one of those black Bibles under the seat in front of you, or you can scroll to it on your electronic device. We're just looking at three or four short verses here in Ephesians 1, continuing in this series, Greater, as we look at the God who is greater than any other idol or God or philosophy, greater than us, greater than our needs, greater than the problems that we're facing. And today we want to look at this God who alone brings peace to us. Are you able to trust that God knows what you really need? That God knows what to do in your life? Look at what Paul writes in verse 7. In him, in Christ... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Now, there's a lot there. And the core of this is this idea of redemption. And in the Old Testament, redemption has the idea of deliverance, God bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt. In the New Testament, in the Greco-Roman world, it has this picture of a price paid to rescue someone from slavery. And so the picture that Paul is painting is uh, in this world, in this culture in which he's writing, people could be enslaved for all kinds of reasons. Your city might have been invaded by uh, an enemy army and you were captured and enslaved. If you were a child, you might have been sold off into slavery to help provide money for your family. Or if you were trying to get money for your family, maybe you were trying to start a business or uh, borrow money to purchase a field, then maybe it doesn't work out. There's no bankruptcy courts in the Greco-Roman world. What happens is you have to literally sell yourself to the money lenders at a price and you become the payment for that debt. You become a slave. You lose all your rights as a citizen And you now belong to that person. And it was possible for people to be ransomed out of slavery. A relative, a benefactor could come along and say, what is the price on this person? And they could pay the price to redeem you, to rescue you out of slavery. And that's the picture in Paul's mind that he's painting for us. That that our biggest problem, our biggest need, is not the people around us, the, the things that frustrate us, the things that we think we need to get life to work for us. Our biggest problem is this, that we are enslaved. We are in bondage because of trespasses, because of sins, because of all those things we just admitted about ourselves a few minutes ago. I'm not what I ought to be. I don't treat people the way I ought to. But Jesus comes into the slave market. And we're up on the auction block with a price on us. And Jesus says, 
I will pay the price. Even though he is the one that we have wronged and offended by our sins. That's that's the very heart of the good news of the gospel. That you and I are slaves to sin and we could no more free ourselves than we could escape from a dungeon. But Jesus is willing to step into our place and pay the price that we could not pay for ourselves. He redeemed us through his blood. Because Paul writes in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. And our lives are forfeit before a holy God whom we have continually sinned against. And the amazing thing is not just that some kind random stranger comes to pay off our debt. But the very king that we have rebelled against and offended and spat in his face and said, I don't need you and I will be king of my own life. He is the one who sends his own son into the market to buy us back at the cost of his own life. Do you believe that God knows what you need? Because when I believe that that is my greatest need, and that God knows that, and that he provides for it. That's what brings peace. That God has rescued me, God has delivered me, and not only paid the penalty for my sin, but as Joey did a great job pointing out last week, he adopts us into his family. That we now become inheritors of all of God's riches. We are sons through faith in Jesus Christ according to God's good purpose. And we deserve the exact opposite. We're stuck, we're enslaved, we have no way of freeing ourselves, we have no peace in ourselves. And God comes to make peace through the blood of Christ on the cross. And not only does he set you free and adopt you into his family, he does it at the price of his son's own life. See, When we're honest with ourselves, we know, we know that there is a price for sin. There's always a cost because somebody gets hurt, somebody is wronged. And the ultimate person who's always wronged is God himself. And Jesus comes along and says, I will redeem you from that. I will rescue you. I will pay the ransom out of the limitless merit of my righteous, sinless life. Jesus paid what he did not owe to redeem us from a debt that we could never repay. And when we believe that that is our greatest need and that God has provided it, that brings peace. See, Jesus hangs on the cross and do you remember what he cries out? It is finished. Paid in full is the term in Greek. Do I really believe that is the question? Because sometimes I, I, I think I tend to act like Jesus said it's mostly paid. It's pretty much paid. I covered a good bit of it, but here's what you need to do to stay in my good graces. Here's what you need to add to what I did in order to really know that I love you, that I'm pleased with you, that, that I delight in you. I've done pretty much everything except for, you know, when you sin, you you still need to feel really bad about it. 
You need to say a certain prayer, and you need to beat yourself up, and you need to keep turning it over in your mind. Jesus is saying, no, no, paid in full. I paid for all of it. And when you know that, when you believe that, when you live out of it, that is what brings peace because that is what you need. We don't need to go to God every time we sin and think, you know, if I don't confess and, you know, say the right prayer, then God's maybe not really okay with me. Any of you ever think this sometimes like, oh, man, I didn't have my private prayer time this morning. Now I'm not really sure I'm going to have a good day. Because I didn't, you know, give something to God. And so now, you know, I can't really trust that he's going to be with me today. Do I really believe that Jesus has paid it all? Because he knows the worst about me and he loves me. I find peace when I know that I'm deeply loved and I'm completely forgiven and that God knows what I need. And that that is what I need. And then I have peace when I trust that the Father knows the right way to give me what I need. Look at how Paul goes on. We have been redeemed through the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight. He lavishes forgiveness on us. Uh, Amelia and I had a great time with a good group of folks last night over at uh, Jane and Terry Fleck's house, and uh, the Clarks had brought some uh, awesome uh, roasted ears of corn, still in the husk, and we're peeling them back, and, and you know, the, the corn's really good, but you gotta slather it with butter to get it really good, right? Sl- just lavish the butter on it. And the, and the butter's just dripping. Maybe that's not your thing, whatever it is. Maybe it's, you know, chocolate molten lava cake or whatever, and the, the chocolate's pouring out of the, you know, the soft center. It's this image of, it's just an overabundance of goodness being poured out, more than we can even hold in or take in. You know, it's easy for us, I think, at times to feel... I look at my failures, I look at the failures of other people, and maybe I wonder, is, is God's grace big enough to cover that? Is, can, can God actually deal with that? Could God help me recover from that, heal from that, get better than that? Maybe I don't have everything that I need. But look at what Paul is saying here. He has lavished his grace on us. In Christ, you have been made rich. You have access to all the resources of God himself to do everything that God has called you to be and to do. He's not holding out on us. Can I believe that God has given me what I need to live the life that he's called me to live? Because that's where I find peace, when I trust that God knows how to give me what I need. And he has all wisdom and knowledge, and he pours it out on us abundantly. So the, the all wisdom and insight, I think, is about God's plan to save us and the way that he's accomplished it, but it's also about what God gives to us in Jesus. I mean, James says, do any of you lack wisdom? Ask God. I, 
I cannot think of a single time that I could say in my life, man, I really regret slowing down and praying to God about that thing. I really wish I'd just run ahead and not slowed down to seek God's wisdom. Right? So why do I not slow down more to pray and seek God's wisdom? Do I really believe that he will lavish wisdom and insight that I need for the relationship challenges I'm facing, for the work challenges, for the, for the financial decisions that I have to make? We don't struggle because, you know, we lack the right skills. I think maybe we struggle, if anything, because we lack calling on the power and the resources that God intends for us to live out of. I mean, the gospel is God actually comes to live inside of me. What else, am I, what else do I need? Has God given me what I need to do what he's called me to do? I have the greatest resource of power in the universe living in me. He lavishes grace and wisdom and insight. And God makes peace possible then because he's willing to bear the cost himself. He's willing not just to pay the price, but to sacrifice himself in order to rescue and redeem us. He gives up his own son to redeem rebels who will become sons and daughters. That's how forgiveness happens. That's always where forgiveness is and why we would have peace. That's how we can live at peace with others. Because if God is willing to absorb the cost of the sin in himself so that I can be at peace, the only way I'm going to be at peace with others is if I'm willing to absorb the cost in myself. And that's the part I don't like, right? I mean, I don't want to love people who don't ever hurt me. I want to love people that I don't ever have to forgive. But if I'm really going to live at peace with others, I have to be willing to absorb the pain that sin always brings. Because that's who God is. That's what Jesus does. That's what he does for us and then enables us to do to others. It's easy sometimes for me to magnify, you know, the wrongs that I feel others have done to me. Like, you know, why did Amelia leave the kitchen a mess? Why, you know, why can't she clean up after herself? I've been asking her this for 20 years. And then she's been asking me stuff for 20 years that I'm still not on track with. And there's an amen from the third row there. <laughs> See, when I'm focused on what she's doing wrong, it's easy for me. There's no peace. There's conflict. There's turmoil. When I'm focusing on how much God has forgiven me, that he has absorbed the cost, the pain of my sin and my rebellion, it changes how I have to look at others. Because I'm looking at the cross now and I'm seeing what Jesus has done for me, which now frees me and empowers me to forgive in the same way. God calls us together to be a redeemed, rescued, forgiving people. It's a family that, that God is calling together that's defined by love and forgiveness out of God's limitless treasures of wisdom and grace. Jesus tells this parable when he's uh, eating at the house of this man, Simon the Pharisee, because uh, Simon gets all self-righteous about this sinful woman 
who's uh, crying tears to wash Jesus' feet. And so he tells a parable about the two men, one who'd been forgiven much and one who'd been forgiven little. And he says, those who have been forgiven much love much. We are people who have been forgiven much, which means we should be people who love much because the life, that very life of Christ is now at work in me. And I have peace when I know that the Father knows how to give me what I need. And then I find peace when I trust that the Father knows the right time to give me what I need to. Paul goes on to say, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So what is this mystery that Paul is talking about? Well, in the Bible, mystery is something that has been hidden in ages past, but is now revealed. And so here, Paul is talking about God's mystery, his gracious plan to bring everything together to reconcile all people through Christ to the Father, all who will come by faith in what Jesus has done. And that was a mystery that has now been made clear through the gospel that God's love is for all people and all are invited to come and find his life and his forgiveness and be part of his family and, and rejoice in his grace. And ultimately, one day when Jesus returns, God is going to subsume everything under the headship of Christ. And he will be Lord of heaven and earth forever and perfectly. The, the Greek word here, in fact, is uh, used in relation to sort of totaling up a column of numbers and making it all add up to one big sum. And Paul is saying everything in this universe adds up to Jesus Christ. It's all pointed towards him. It's all going to be about him. It's all going to be for his renown, for his glory, for his fame. And one day that will happen. Because in Christ, God is tying together all of history and everything that has happened on the world stage, but more than that, everything that's happening in my life. Because think about it, if God is going to bring everything together to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ, does that include the things that I'm going through? The pain, the confusion, the loneliness, the sorrow, the uncertainty, the fear? Is it possible that God could be using that to, to bring it all into obedience to Christ? for his purposes in my life. See, God cares not just about, you know, a life after death and eternity somewhere, but God cares about life in life here and now. And, and he wants us to have peace in knowing that he is at work in all those things to bring them into subjection to Christ and to make them work for his purposes and everything is going to be brought back into alignment with God and, and unity with him as it was supposed to be from the beginning. And so there's a peace that God gives us in knowing that he is working all those things out according to his plan. And that makes me less stressed. 
about what's going on in my life. It makes me less stressed about, you know, cars being totaled and the bills not adding up the right way. It makes me less stressed about what's going on in the world. It doesn't make me passive, but what it says is you don't have to panic. You don't have to grab control because that's what the world is always telling us, isn't it? Fight for your rights. Argue your position. Go out into the arena and Man, look at the world that we live in with all the ugly political divides and debates. Blue lives matter and black lives matter and pro-Confederate statues and anti-Confederate statues and violence here and violence there and people just yelling past each other. This world desperately needs people who would be winsome, informed ambassadors who can go out into the middle of all of it and say, Jesus doesn't have to fit into your boxes because he's bigger than all of them. And I'm not anxious as a Christian. I can go out into the square and say, I'm not anxious that, you know, it has to be this way and it has to look like this and and we've got to get our rights taken care of and we need to get the right people in office because Jesus rules over it all. Whether Caesar is on the throne or there's no Caesar or whatever it looks like, it matters what we do but we don't have to be stressed and anxious about it and and we don't have to grab control to make it look the way that we think it's supposed to because God is already in control of this world. He's in control of your world and he is bringing all things together in Christ where his peace and his redemption will reign and we get a foretaste of it now. I read across this, I ran across this fascinating story a few months ago. A man named Kevin. True story. Kevin had gone out drinking after a New Year's Eve party. You know, his friends said, don't, let's call you cab. No, no, I can handle it. He gets in his big sedan and he's driving around a curve and loses control and runs into a hatchback of a young woman named Susan, 18 years old, and she's killed instantly. And still Kevin thinks that he got off easy. Even though he's convicted of vehicular manslaughter and drunk driving, the real kicker was that Susan's parents were suing him in a civil suit for a million and a half dollars. Originally, uh, that was the request, but uh, they ended up settling for $936. And Kevin thought, man, this is great. But there was a catch... Susan's parents stipulated, we'll settle for $936, but it's going to be paid this way. Every week on Friday, the day that Susan was killed, you're going to write us a $1 check every week for the next 18 years of her life, because that's how old she was when you ended her life. 936 checks for $1 every week on a Friday, the day that he ended Susan's life. Susan's family wanted to make sure that Kevin was never going to forget what he had done to them. And after this initial relief, Kevin started realizing this payment plan maybe wasn't as great as he thought. First, weariness started to set in, and then, and then it got worse. He found himself getting depressed as he was reminded every Friday of how he had caused this young girl's death. Writing her name on the checks became so painful that at one point he just stopped doing it. And Susan's parents went to court and forced him to continue writing the checks. 
And he, he would do it for a little while, and then he would stop again, and they had to go back to court four times every time he would stop sending in the checks. One time, Kevin offered them two shoeboxes full of predated checks for the next 12 years, and they said, no, we want one check every day, every week, for all the years that you took from our daughter. Finally, Kevin took the family to court, saying it was cruel and unusual punishment. The court did not agree with him. The whole point, Susan's parents reminded him, was to make sure that he never forgets that he killed our daughter. As long as Kevin is required to stay paid up with Susan's parents, to be reminded of the guilt and the pain that he has caused, is there any possibility that they're going to have any kind of a relationship? Of course not. But because there's all the guilt and the pain and the shame and the anger and, and the hurt. And paying that check weekly is a way of forcing Kevin to focus on what he's done wrong. And it just produces guilt and regret and shame and distance. And, and it wasn't even just Susan's parents. Kevin wrote in an interview, there, there were hundreds and hundreds of people who hated me. Susan's sister, her friends at church, her friends at school. I took her away. They didn't have a chance to say goodbye. Many of Kevin's friends left him, and he found it hard to make new friends. It's awkward to explain what I did for all those years, and when I tell people the truth, it's hard for them to want to say they want to be my friend. You cannot have a personal relationship where guilt and forgiveness are unresolved. And that's true inside of us, that's true with other people, and it's certainly true with God. A lot of Christians are like Kevin. They're still trying to work something off with God, and, and they feel like they need to be paid up. They, they need to keep working off this debt that they keep accruing with God. Well, I sinned, and now I need to beat myself up, and I need to feel bad, and, and I, you know, I'm going to serve or give or respond out of, out of guilt because you know, then God will, I'll be back in God's good graces. You know, if, if I do this, if, if I feel bad enough about what I did. Do we believe that because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, all our sins are wiped away? All of them. Past, present, future. Do we believe as Christians that God loves us unconditionally and there's nothing that we can do to make him love us less and there's nothing that we can do to make him love us more because he looks at us through the sacrifice of his son who is perfect? Do we believe in a gospel of grace that says I don't have to perform to get God's love and to know that I'm forgiven? Because, see, if I don't know that, there's no chance that I'm going to have any peace inside me. And if I don't have that kind of peace in me, then I, then I don't have it with other people either because I'm going to be focused on what they did wrong to me. I've been forgiven little, so I forgive you little. And I want you to know how much you hurt me and how much you wronged me and how much you offended me. And I want to keep bringing it up to you because I don't have peace in myself, so why should you have any peace? And I don't have any to give you either. And I'm going to be anxious to, to go out into the world and try and make the world work and look the way that I think it ought to look. Because I don't really know that God's in control. I, I can't really trust that either. You'll be like Susan's parents, always demanding that other people acknowledge 
what they've done wrong, always needing others to work off their debts, always needing to remind people of how they've let you down and and how they've hurt and disappointed you. For yourself, for others, even for the world around us, you need the peace that comes from knowing you have been redeemed that you are forgiven, that God is at peace, that you are paid up completely. We need that. And and when we have that, then we live expectantly and confidently, not because we're trying to, you know, gin up some kind of peace in ourselves, but because we have it, because God has already done something that gives us the peace that we need. And then it's, it's no longer about your strength or your wisdom or your efforts or your goodness or your accomplishments. It's about what Jesus has done. And then when I rest in that, that gives me peace that can flow out of me to reach other people and to bless them with the, with the peace that, that I've known. Maybe you're here today and you've blown it again and again. The same thing. Or you've struggled over and over again to get beyond that, that one thing and it, and it just keeps coming up and you can't get past it. And Do you know, do you know that God has forgiven you? Maybe you're hearing your own voice, your own words more and you don't like what's coming out of your mouth. Do you know that God has forgiven that? And that he can give you the power to help that. You don't have to be discouraged. You don't have to beat yourself up. You don't have to run away and hide. You don't have to put on a mask. You don't have to pretend. You just come and you you bring it and you own it. Because God already knows anyway. And and that's where he lavishes his grace out to us. And then you can go forward in peace and confidence because you are redeemed. You're forgiven. God delights in you. God lives in you so that through you, others could experience the peace and the forgiveness and grace that God has poured out lavishly to his redeemed children. Live in that peace and be a peacemaker. Let me pray for us. Father, we need you. We need you to come into our world of trouble and chaos and disorder and doubt and fear to bring your peace. Would you meet us with your power to rescue, to change, to give us the peace and the hope and the strength that only you can provide. You are the God who makes peace with us through the blood of your Son shed on the cross. Thank you, Father. Father, may we be peacemakers. If there are people here today, Father, who have never come to the point of accepting that peace and and living in it, I pray today would be the day that they would say, I want that peace. And Father, that that would be true for all of us as well, that we would grow in knowing and living out of your redeeming power to make peace in our hearts, peace with others, and even peace in this world. We need you, Jesus. We thank you. We love you. And we pray it in your name. Amen.